Good morning. Let's begin with prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, you are good, and we worship you knowing that these praises come from you in the first place. Lord, knowing that our lives are not perfect, but that you are, and so we spend time in your presence. We put ourselves in a position where you can mold us and grow us and challenge us and work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you that you do that. We thank you for your grace. And as we lean into your word this morning, God, I pray that our hearts would be open and that you would reveal to us exactly what it is that we need to know about you and your goodness and your promises this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Wonderful. So we spent the summer talking about walking in community, uh, really looking at the path that the Israelites and all of those that were with them took when they left Egypt, when they were freed from slavery. They were liberated. They wandered in the desert a long time, right? They received the law, the Ten Commandments, something really concrete that revealed God's life for them, the life that God created them to experience. They saw countless examples of God's power and God's presence. And finally, now, 40-ish years later, they get to enter the promised land. It's quite a story. It's a story, first and foremost, I think, of God's faithfulness. It wasn't God's unfaithfulness that drew this out. It was the unfaithfulness of his people. It's a story of sin and the consequences of sin. When we fall short of that mark, there are often consequences, not just for us personally, but for the communities that we walk in. It's a story of faithful leaders like Moses and Joshua, both whom God worked through in a way that that essentially gave the people the assurance that these people were going to lead them well. It's also a story of pain. It's a story of what reality can be like for many of us in our lives and what reality can be like when God's promises, when God himself is not fully embraced by his creatures. So today we're looking at Joshua 4 when he finally got to enter the promised land, the storied land of milk and honey. This is what they've been waiting for, right? See, when we picture the promised land, it might look a little different in our heads than what it looked like for them. And this is my personal, my personal pictures. Uh, personally, when I think promised land, I might think of very similar images in my head to Garden of Eden, right? It would be something just beautiful, just lush, with, with fruit trees, with green grass, with streams, cute little birdies singing on the trees. Or maybe... Uh, Maybe for you, it's, it's cornfields. Maybe this is the promised land, Iowa, right? I tell you, when we uh, lived in Kentucky for two years, every time we crossed the bridge in Davenport back into Iowa, it was like an exhale. We were back in the promised land. Or maybe in your mind, it's the Gulf Shores or, or the, the sandy beaches of Myrtle Beach, somewhere where you can sit and just see this vast water, never changing, but ever changing at the same time. Or maybe if you're a a movie nerd like me, it's some grandiose scene out of Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. The promised land is, it's a big thing in our minds. And for them it was a big thing too, right? But for the Israelites, it wasn't these beautiful things that we are picturing in our head. It doesn't mean it wasn't beautiful. 
It's complicated, maybe, is the best way to put it. So we're going to go through a couple highlights of our Joshua text this morning. And you can find that on pages 335 and 336 in your pew Bibles, if you want to pull that out. I'm not going to read every verse, uh, but I do want to hit a few highlights. So in verses 8 and 9, as we heard this morning, they're, they're doing this stone marker thing again. Uh, Joshua asks 12 people to go into the Jordan on the dry land that they're walking across on and take up 12 stones from the riverbed. And they move them up to the crossing point. And this is going to be a reminder. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago about Celtic Christianity. They had this view that sometimes the kingdom of God broke through in a powerful way. They called that a thin place where God's presence, God's power was just very real for them. And so they would make these little markers. And this is like what the Israelites are doing here again. Later they set up these stones as a monument, as we'll read in a few verses. Something more permanent that tells the story. Going on to verse 12 and 13, uh, this stuck out to me. Notice who is coming across first. You'd think, okay, let's get all the women and children to safety. Let's send them across the river first. That's not what they did. The people to come across the river first are the men of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, and they're armed for battle. 40,000 soldiers. Not exactly the promised land, right? They aren't sending... Sending the innocent into safety, they're sending the warriors in because it's not safe. The promised land is not to be mistaken for the paradise, um, although it seems understandable that they have this really uh, big image and peaceful image in their head of what it might have been. That wasn't the case. They would have preferred the beautiful garden, but they didn't get that. And these soldiers are ready in the next couple of chapters, they're ready to go to Jericho, and in Jericho, they're going to start taking over the promised land, the land that God had given them. In verse 14 of our text this morning, um, I mentioned earlier, Joshua is exalted in the eyes of the people. God's power was resting on Joshua in a way that people trusted the authority that he was leading with because they recognized that it was from God. Much like Moses. And then in verse 18, we see the priests, they finally carry the Ark of the Covenant out of the water, everyone's across, and the river just goes right back to its natural course. I'm going to read a little bit past where we stopped this morning, verse 19 through 24. You're welcome to follow along, page 336 now, of your pew Bible. It says, On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up there the twelve stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might also fear the Lord your God. These stones tell a story. For them, hopefully, they were hoping this was like a bookend, right? On a very long journey. Their journey began pretty, pretty early on by crossing the Red Sea and experiencing uh, deliverance from Pharaoh's army, 
And now they're crossing the Jordan. They're experiencing delivering from the wilderness. Deliverance from the wilderness. If we were to read on here today, chapter 5 and 6 of Joshua, we get to see the fall of Jericho, another way that God miraculously provided for them. Uh, Marching around a city, blasting the trumpets, isn't necessarily the way that we would do battle today, right? But God did it differently. His hand was on the people that he had made this promise to. But then what happens in chapter 7? If you were to peek ahead at the headings, uh, by the time we hit chapter 7 of Joshua, we're again dealing with the unfaithfulness of God's people. They're failing to trust already that God is who he said he was. That God is still going to provide for them. You know, it doesn't sound like the promised land that they had in mind. It has potential. And it is the land that God has promised to them, which means there's something good, right? Something good there. But there's no grandeur. The potential and the finality of God's promise still has not been realized, right? And as we know, if we read on through the Old Testament, it is this ebb and flow, this cycle of righteousness and sin and righteousness and sin. Trusting the Lord, not trusting the Lord. And so is the story of the nation of Israel. So the potential is there. The promise remains. But on this day, they were in the land. They were in the promised land, but the struggles and trials continue. Receiving God's promised land did not cure their sin. It did not fix their problems. It did not magically make everything easy for them. They maybe thought it was going to be easy, but it wasn't. How does this testimony from thousands of years ago resonate with our lives today? Um, This really, to me, sounds familiar to the tension that we walk in as Christians. On this day today, we are in God's kingdom as his children, but our struggles and trials continue, right? Life isn't easy. There's still sin in this world. There's still brokenness. There's still sickness. Receiving God's gift of grace and salvation does not immediately cure us from sin, although it helps, and temptation. It does not immediately fix our problems, although it can help and give us a worldview with which to deal with those things and trust in the Lord, nor does it make our lives magically easy. This is the reality that we live into today. Like the Israelites, they had tasted and they had seen that God's reality was good, that God was powerful, that God was working things out and fulfilling his promises. And for us, our reality today is like this spiritual land of milk and honey. It's not perfect, but there is so much to be experienced, so much blessing to take part in, so much grace and love to have in the body of Jesus Christ. We get to experience forgiveness because of Jesus' death for our sins. We get to experience grace in our everyday struggles to be more like Jesus Christ. Again, it's not easy, but God's grace is so much bigger than any shortfall that we have. We have God's word at our fingertips 24-7, right? Digitally, printed. We have this always-on connection with God through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why prayer is such an important part of our promised land and the kingdom of God. We are in the promised land as God's people. This is a spiritual land. This is a non-political land. There are no borders or boundaries. The borders are Jesus Christ. 
The citizenship comes by grace through faith, through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's work to be done in our promised land too, right? God doesn't call us to be a citizen and then give us no mission. The mission that God calls his church to, it's necessary and it's life-giving, but it's not easy. And this is why we have our Romans text here this morning, because it's a really good reminder for us. So if you want to take the same Pew Bible, page 1,757, we're going to be reading a little bit out of Romans in 8, Romans chapter 8. I think that Paul, when penning this, maybe understood the tension better than most, better than a lot of us. As an early apostle, Paul had been one of the most fervent Jews, protecting God's law, living it out to the, to the letter until Jesus grabbed hold of him and showed him that there was this life of love and grace that he'd been missing out on. Paul writes this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they have already? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Paul describes a life of suffering, a life of trials, but an insurpassable glory that God has. And we get to taste that and we get to see it, but we know that it's not fully realized for us, so we wait for it patiently. As Christians, without the promise of Jesus coming back, without the promise of eternal life, we might not have as, as much fervor to live for God, would we? There are many joys, there are many tastes of that that we get to experience in our lives as we grow in our faith, as we be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the world around us. But we know that there's more. When the Israelites came into the promised land, there was still more. This is our reality as Christians today. God has done incredible things for us. We have the promised Holy Spirit. We have grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We have, the to look forward, we have the inheritance of eternal life. But we still have the tensions and the sufferings that are so very real. So just like Israel's work was not done when they crossed the Jordan, neither is our work done when we go through the waters of baptism, when we experience salvation through Jesus Christ. We still live in a world of conflict and tension. The church is not fully realized and it's not perfect. We are not either. But we still have hope, right? We're here, we're working on this faith, we're working on trusting in the Lord, becoming more like Jesus Christ, because we have a hope that there is more. God used his people in Israel to do what? 
to bring about Jesus Christ. All of those things that we read about in the Exodus, all those things that we read about continuing through the historical narrative of the Old Testament bring about the culmination of Jesus Christ. Even in their lack of faith, even in their sin, God still works through them and fulfilled his promises. God is using our own present sufferings and our own growth to further his kingdom so that others may know that same love of Jesus Christ and experience forgiveness. And Paul writes that our sufferings are going to pale in comparison to the glory of God. It's a beautiful day that we get to look forward to. We're in the promised land, the people of God, but we get to look forward to that garden again. We get to look forward to the grandeur of life with Jesus Christ. So if you take one thing away this morning, I know that at certain seasons of our lives we live with various levels of hope and joy and peace. It's not always easy. But if you take one thing away, know that a broken, intense world, the reality that we see around us, doesn't mean that God's love or God's promises are small. Doesn't mean that God has voided anything that he has extended to his people. For Israel, the promised land was still the promised land. God is keeping his promise for you, too. And for our community, as we walk together. God is working in us and through us as individuals and as his people to establish something beautiful and eternal, and that's the kingdom of God. So be patient in your own growth. Be patient with God's timing. Be patient when the trials and the temptations cause you or your loved ones to stumble. The Israelites had to learn patience. We also have to learn patience. It's part of being human. Be patient in the growth of our church community. Things here don't happen overnight, certainly. Things out there, sometimes they happen overnight. But our patience will help us to endure and trust in the Lord that he is good. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Because Jesus is Lord, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And for me, I think God's promises are a done deal. Just because I don't see the full realization of those yet doesn't mean that God has pulled them away from us. So be patient and take hope. We are part of God's promised land, his promised people. So let's live that out. Let's live that out in our daily lives and as a church, let's encourage others to taste and see how good this promised land is. Let's pray. So Lord, we, um, again, Lord, we thank you for this testimony. It is powerful to see how much your love and your grace shines through even in the midst of some enormous sin and some enormous doubt. That's true of what we see in the life of the Israelites and all of those that traveled with them in the desert, but it's also true for us. Perhaps each one of us here today is just keenly aware of the sin in our lives. But Lord, I pray that every single one of us is keenly aware of how big your grace is and how big your love is. 
Lord, it is through relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, that we experience salvation. We experience grace. We experience forgiveness. We experience a clean slate. And Lord, as we live in this kingdom of God that is so lavishly full of love, I pray, God, that we would be great witnesses. That this eternal kingdom that we are a part of today, not something that we're waiting for tomorrow, but we are a part of today, is, is something that we are compelled to go share with a world that needs the hope, that needs the grace and the love that can only come through Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you empower us in these ways? Would you spur us on? And Lord, help us to be patient. In Jesus' name, amen.